So if you're visiting with us this morning, we're in Ecclesiastes and we're preaching through that book and this morning we'll be in uh, verses 12 through 18 of chapter 1. The brilliant physicist Stephen Hawking, according to some, the, the smartest man, certainly one of them who has ever lived, once said, we are just an advanced breed of monkeys on a minor planet with the life of a very average star, but we can understand the universe. Now Solomon, the poet king of Israel, who according to God was the wisest man who ever lived, essentially said the exact opposite. I applied my whole being to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven and, and I got nothing. I can't even figure out what's going on on my own planet says King Solomon. In today's passage, the preacher is wrestling with the reality that that many things happen in this life that don't seem to make sense given the goodness and the greatness of the glory of God. Yet, we as human beings are, are, are driven to understand. That is, to try to make sense out of this sometimes crazy world we inhabit. What becomes clear from our passage, and to a degree from even our own experience, is that there are limits to human wisdom. But so far from this leading us to despair, this is the reality that drives us to Jesus. So if you're tempted to survey the current landscape, maybe by just kind of scrolling through current events, and you're tempted as you look at the world to just cry out to God and say, why? Why? How could this be good? Or maybe, maybe you're sitting here and you're just thinking through the details of your own life. The current circumstances that you're facing or potential obstacles. And if you feel the question arising within your soul, really, Lord? This is what you have for me? Then then you're beginning to get at the sense, the feeling, the weight of the words of Solomon. If this is true, though, brothers and sisters, take heart. And let the word of Almighty God recalibrate your heart around the beauty and the majesty 
of the greatness of the glory of our God. This is what's true. The foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Therefore, this very morning, let us, as we have already sung, behold our God. Our passage is Ecclesiastes 1, verses 12 through 18. Hear the words of the living God. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Lord, Would you lead us now by your Spirit? It is a stunning thing that we can ask you, a Holy Spirit, to probe our hearts. It's stunning because you are the very one who probes the deep things of the mind of God. And so would you lead us now? Would you encourage us and build us up in any areas where we need to be strengthened and encouraged and consoled? And would you, would you reveal to us if there be any wicked way in us that we might repent of those things so that your Holiness, the beauty of your glory might be reflected in us. To that end, would you, would you help us now? Would you care for your people as we, as we walk through your word? And would you reveal the glory of Jesus Christ as we do? We ask in his name, amen. Now, you, you may never heard of, may never have heard of this man, and I hadn't either, but uh, a man named Daniel Tammet 
over the course of five hours and nine minutes, once recited 22,514 digits of pi without error. 3.14 That's all I got. (laughs) And following. He he once learned Icelandic in a week. We, We are talking about a prodigious intellect. We are talking about a level of brainiacness that we can't even sniff, most of us. In his memoir, Born on a Blue Day, Inside the Extraordinary Mind of an Autistic Savant, he writes, I still remember vividly the experience I had as a teenager, lying on the floor of my room, staring up at the ceiling. I was trying to picture the universe in my head, To have a a concrete understanding of what everything was. In my mind, I traveled to the edges of existence and, and looked over them, wondering what I would find. In that instant, I felt really unwell. And I could feel my heart beating inside of me, because for the first time, I had realized that thought and logic had limits and could only take a person so far. This realization frightened me, and it took me a long time to come to terms with it. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord." For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. But do these words from the prophet, do they make you feel really unwell? Or do these words, exulting in the greatness of the knowledge of the glory of God, do they bring you to a place of peace that surpasses all understanding? My prayer has been that God will use our time gathered together now for the latter. We might summarize the the overall message of The passage like this, the pursuit of human wisdom and its end can be painful, but in the end, it points us to the person of Christ. Both both the pursuit of human wisdom and, and its end can be very, very painful, but in the end, it points us 
to the person of Christ. So, really simple breakdown this morning. First, I want to look at the the meaning of the passage in the context of Ecclesiastes. And then next, I want to look at the meaning of the passage in the overall context of the Bible. Very straightforward. But here's the question. How do we go about figuring out the meaning of the passage? I want to take a a cue from the preacher in this book and, and make some observations. Because that's what he's doing, right? He's looking around at the world and making observations. And so let us make some observations about his observations. And we'll come to the meaning of what he's saying, which I think is very, very clear. The first thing we need to do is figure out where our passage falls. Now, you remember that before our passage, after he identifies himself, the preacher opens with a very bold statement. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, which means mysterious, perhaps meaningless, futile, even frustratingly so, striving after the wind. But right after he makes this bold declaration, he gets right to the point. His opening question, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Wouldn't it be a gift if a preacher got right to the point? Right out of the gate. (laughs) I'm a work in progress. Now, that's what precedes our section, right? What immediately follows our section then is that you can tell he's he's still answering this question in chapter 2. Because the preacher goes on to say, He's working on several things. In fact, what he actually does is extraordinary. Like picking up in verse 4, for example, of chapter 2. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. And, And we know that Solomon's wealth and the works that he had done were literally world famous. Remember the queen of Sheba came from another continent just because she heard of the wisdom and the wealth of Solomon. He had done, in context, perhaps more than any other person had done. He goes on in chapter 2, because this is all the same section, to reiterate the very opening question down in chapter 2 and verse 22. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? In addition to this, the word for toil, which is the word in the opening question, is used 15 times just in this, just in this little section from 112 to the end of chapter 2. The point of all of this is to say that in our section, he's still answering that opening question. The author, who I believe is Solomon, indicates 
that this unhappy business of toil, which in the broadest sense just means life on this earth under the sun, right? But in the more narrow sense that he's using it in chapter 2 and verse 21 includes, that is his toil includes the pursuit of wisdom. And he makes, he makes a very interesting point, which has been given to us, this unhappy business of toil, which includes this pursuit of wisdom, has been given to us from God's hand. Now that's intriguing. It's also very important, and we'll, we'll develop that thought as we walk through. Now, recall, as we've talked about over the past couple of weeks in our first messages in Ecclesiastes, that to understand wisdom literature, we need to remember or to realize that it's not, it's not typically propositional truth, like this is true, this is false, this is true, this is false. Rather, it's probing in nature. It's trying to get us to begin to ask the right questions about what is actually true in reality. So just thinking about what we've talked about already, let this, let this question linger for a moment. If it's true that life on this earth, that is this unhappy business, if it's true that it comes from God, what, what purpose would that serve? Or we might ask it this way. If the pursuit of wisdom and its end is painful, why would God organize the world to work that way? These are the types of questions that wisdom literature is designed to get us to think about. Maybe you found yourself asking a similar type of question as you've wrestled, as as you've genuinely wrestled with why something is happening in the world. Maybe you're aghast at the laws on the books in terms of abortion. Or maybe maybe you're thinking on a much more personal level about your own life or, or about something going on with a friend of yours. Something happening in your family. And, and you've thought, genuinely so, why, God? What good purpose, what good purpose could this possibly serve? What are you doing? But wisdom isn't typically pursued just as an end to its self, but as an exercise in search of real answers. Real answers often to life's hardest questions. In that light, all of a sudden, 3,000-year-old wisdom seems very, very up-to-date. Now, as we look at the specific observations or assertions that Solomon makes in our, our section... I want to I prime the gospel pump a little bit by reminding ourselves of our overarching assertion. That is that the pursuit of human wisdom and its end 
can be painful. But in the end, it points us to the person of Christ. Wisdom literature is a lot about trajectories. It's causing me to think, in what direction? Sometimes it's deep to look inside. Sometimes it's to look outside. Often it's to look up and to think hard about what must be true. It's going to be pointing us to Christ. I'd kind of like just to skip there, personally. But first, misery. If Solomon is the author, as I believe to be true, it's very, very powerful that you can notice, verse 12, that he's speaking autobiographically here. That's fascinating because because despite his incredible wisdom, we know from the historical books that Solomon made a lot of awful decisions. He was almost as infamous in some of his decision-making as he was famous for his wisdom. That's what makes him such a powerful figure to be writing this particular book. What's interesting about that to me is, 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 is the voice of the preacher in Ecclesiastes sounds a lot like an, a person, perhaps older, in kind of a sage-like way, reflecting back over his life. Perhaps he's looking back over his reign with some of the decisions that he's made, despite the wisdom God has given him. And there are times where where his despair practically drips off the page. Pursuing wisdom and its end is like, like trying to corral the wind, which to him seems particularly frustrating because a third of the number of times that the word wise or wisdom is used in the whole book of Ecclesiastes all happen in this particular section. So as he's thinking about this toil, he's really laser focused now on the pursuit of wisdom. He is locked in on this issue. What are his conclusions? They become very clear. So if if you have your Bible open and you're looking at it, you you can see how clear it is. There is an observation followed by basically like a proverb that kind of illustrates or in this case amplifies the point he's making then then there's another assertion basically followed by another little proverb and you can tell that cuz most of the most of the versions have it kind of inset like that right so so the so the outline of what he's actually saying becomes becomes really really clear the only problem is it's also really, really hard to process what he's saying. I think in verses 13 and 14 then, after his initial introduction in verse 12, in verses 13 and 14, I think he's saying this. Pursuing wisdom, the pursuit of wisdom, pursuing wisdom is mysteriously maddening to him. I think that's a fair way to summarize it. He calls it unhappy business. He says, I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, it's all 
maddeningly mysterious. It's like trying to corral the wind. It's a fair summary, I think. And he, he illustrates that point, amplifies it, verse 15, with that little proverb, proverbial statement. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, we see the limits of human wisdom already. His second observation, verses 16 through 18. Remember, I said a minute ago, uh, wisdom literature is often about trajectories. Where's he pointing us? Okay, so if, if the pers- pursuit of wisdom is frustrating and futile, where does that lead us? His second point here, it leads us to its end, since human wisdom has limits, and it leads us to misery. And I'm, it's not my opinion. He, he, he amplifies that with the final verse in verse 18 and says, For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. So life under the sun is a maddening mystery because even the full pursuit of human wisdom leads you to a place where you still can't quite get your hands around it, you can't quite comprehend it, and you can't quite control it, therefore. Now, there are so, there are so many heart-wrenching realities that are just a part of life in this world under the sun. From dealing with injustice in the courts or as it relates to the most vulnerable, to Satan's evil scheming in the church, from the ravages of dementia to the death of a child, from from the pain of loneliness to the fog of depression. Even if we continue to grow in our understanding of these realities, human wisdom is not able to fully overcome them. There's there's something inspiring, but, but also deeply disheartening when we see perhaps on TV, for example, someone who's who's battling a terminal illness, and they'll stand up valiantly and courageously before the cameras and say, we will beat this. If you're 40 years old or over, older probably, and you're a sports fan, you might remember Jimmy Valvano, the coach of North Carolina State, and you might remember his famous speech within those circles of... Uh, at the ESPYs that ESPN broadcast. And basically in that speech, he was dying of cancer. He goes on to talk about the fact that if you've laughed and you've cried, then you've had a good day. That's a good day. And then he kind of channels Churchill and says, we'll never give up, never, ever give up. And it's, 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 it's tear-jerking and it's, it's heart-wrenching. But when a person like that says... We will not let this win. We will beat this. There's another sense in which that rings hollow. 
Because we know that death is relentlessly knocking on the door. Where does the pursuit of wisdom lead? Solomon says that he experienced wisdom and knowledge more than anyone before him who had led Israel. So not just dad, King David, and Saul, but anyone who had led Israel before. And there are many, many colorful leaders. He makes a reference to, verse 17, going after madness and folly also when the pursuit of wisdom didn't work. Now, he's going to talk about that a lot more, so we'll save that for another day. But this truth, where does wisdom lead? Combined with the proverb, says the pursuit of human wisdom and its end can be painful because it leads to ever-increasing sorrow. Jonathan Edwards once remarked that because of the pain that is just a reality in this world, that the most we could hope for in this life, or to use Solomon's words, the most we can hope for under the sun, is a kind of broken-hearted joy because we're aware of the reality of evil and of pain, and it intersects with our lives sometimes in shocking and surprising ways. I think this is true as a parent. Even if you're having a great day. I'm looking at Mr. Half Full over there, Scott. Have you ever said hi to Scott? How's it going? Great! (laughs) Great. But if Scott knows one of his children or grandchildren is struggling, he may feel joyful, but there's a broken-hearted joy there. Because he's sharing the burden of their pain. Well, multiply that out by practically an infinite number of difficult situations, and you you can see very easily how the most we could hope for is a very real, but a a sorrow-tinged joy. This is, if I may just speak personally for a minute, certainly true as a pastor. The, the privilege of getting to minister day after day and week after week is an honor beyond anything I've ever experienced. But as you wade into the difficulties that people experience in this world, it also has increased my sorrow more than I had ever experienced in my life as well. But that's not just relegated to pastors. <laughs> Anybody who's willing to move into relationship with other people experiences the exact same thing. But this is one of the beauties, perhaps even uniquely so, of the Christian life and Christian fellowship more specifically. Listen listen to what Paul says about this. Bear one another's burdens and, and, and how does it end? It's, it's shocking. And so fulfill the law of Christ. In other words, being willing to wade in and carry some of the load for another person is what it means to love God and to love others. This is the essence of the matter. It just happens to be messy and painful and 
sorrowful. But he continues, do not, do not grow weary in well-doing, brothers and sisters, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. This is why we can be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because we know, we know deep down and we know by the testimony of God's word that our work is not in vain. This is the hope that frees us to keep pressing in even though sometimes we get burned. So how do we transition from this mess? And it turns out Romans 1 and 2 ends up being very re- relevant for Ecclesiastes. All of this messiness was very well articulated in Romans 1 and 2. It doesn't make it any easier, but it's a very accurate diagnosis. But, but how do we go from there and the generalized depression that we're all experiencing rather acutely at the moment, right? How do we go from where we all are except for Donna to where Donna is, which is joyful and satisfied in Christ? This is not an easy gap to bridge. The transition is hard. The answer is that we need to not only understand our passage in light of Ecclesiastes, we need to understand our passage and Ecclesiastes in light of the Bible and what it says about Jesus. You remember when he was walking down the road to Emmaus after he was resurrected from the dead, and he was alongside a couple of his followers, and and he said, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In other words, in the law books, the prophetic books, and the wisdom books. In other words, the entire Old Testament. So where where do we look for hope when the pursuit of human wisdom reaches its limit, because that's where we are right now. First, recall that Solomon says that this is an unhappy business given by God. If the pursuit of wisdom is an unhappy business, ultimately leading to increasing sorrow, then where do we find joy? Or we might say it this way, how can we be rescued from or even in this unhappy providence that God has given us? The crookedness of the world, which has been subjected to futility, Romans 8, and the the twistedness of our hearts which even after our conversion are still kind of tangled up, Romans 7, they are screaming for someone outside of us to come rescue us. We don't need a religious philosopher. 
We don't need a military commander. We don't need more legislation or even greater moral demands in order to fix the mess of the world or to fix the mess that resides in our own hearts. What we need is a redeemer. We need someone who can who can bear all of this mess. That is, all of the crookedness, all of the vexation, all of the sorrow. We need someone who can bear all of this mess onto himself, who is also capable of making all things new. Someone who's capable of making everything sad actually untrue. Broadly, the creation needs a redeemer because it's been subjected to futility. Personally, we need a redeemer because that crookedness, that twistedness has permeated in our own hearts. Frankly, it goes inside out. We need to be reminded that all of the messiness was part of the plan all along to bring us to the end of human wisdom, to bring us to the end of ourselves. But what could possibly be the point of grief this devastating? Paul said that there was a time when he and his followers or the people that he was with, the ministers of the gospel, there was a time when they were in Asia and they were so overwhelmed that they despaired of even life itself. Paul said, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. The reason the world can't, can't be straightened out, think of, a, think of a piece of rebar that's just all bent up and then trying to, with your bare hands, untangle that. Pretend you're not Shane so it couldn't happen. The reason the world or our own hearts can't be straightened out by human wisdom is because it is designed in such a way that sooner or later, We need to look outside of ourselves in order to be rescued from ourselves. The world is designed this way. As as we marvel at its at its beauty, and as we try to try to manage its brokenness, it's designed this way to get us to long for a better wisdom that can make sense of everything that happens under the sun. This world is designed to get us to long for the one who became for us. Wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, namely Jesus. And Paul adds, so that as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. (laughs) Small little sentence he added on there. What an indictment on us. Because if the world was a solvable problem... We would exult in our ability to figure it out. 
We can't solve the problem, and we still do this. Think about what Hawking said. He's basically saying, look, I'm a kind of a more mature monkey who lives on this rock, but I can understand the universe. The world is designed this way to reveal God's wisdom through redemption, by the cross, and specifically in Christ. Jesus is the very embodiment, that is, the literal personification of wisdom itself. If you want to know what wisdom looks like, look to Jesus. Look at the way he loved Look at the way he pursued. Look at the way he confronted sin. Look at his gentleness. Look at his kindness. Rulers feared him. And little kids wanted to jump in his lap. If you want to know what wisdom looks like, look to Jesus. Now the problem is, the obstacle that needs to be overcome, and it's been like this since Genesis 3, is that human wisdom is opposed to the wisdom of God. The reason is because God's wisdom flows straight through the veins of his son and the righteous blood he spilled out for us on Calvary's cross. And we hate that. Because it says to us, you need to be saved. You can't figure this out. You're not righteous enough. You're not wise enough to do it yourself. You must look to another. This is how Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 1. For the word of the cross is folly. In other words, foolishness or the opposite of wisdom. Right? For the word of the cross is the opposite of wisdom to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and The opposite of wisdom to Gentiles, foolishness, folly. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is the glory of the wisdom of God. This is the wisdom of redemption. This is the wisdom of the cross. This is the wisdom of the gospel itself. This is the wisdom of God revealed 
in the person of Jesus Christ, his unconquerable son. So whether it's expressed through Stephen Hawking or Solomon, human wisdom itself apart from Christ ultimately leads to death and increasing sorrow. But when we come to the end of ourselves and begin to long for another, there is Jesus. As God, in his inscrutable wisdom, planned so long ago, there is Jesus waiting for us, radiating a true wisdom that leads to eternal life and everlasting, ever-increasing joy. So trust in him, my beloved brothers and sisters. Trust in him with all of your heart because in his presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures evermore. Would you pray with me? Lord, um, we're so in over our heads with Ecclesiastes that um, it's hard to process, but we are so grateful for the clarifying, illuminating ministry of your Spirit, which shines a spotlight on both the reality of our existence and the greatness of the glory of Christ. So I pray that now, I pray now that the reality of what is true for us, because of who Jesus is and because of what he has done, would cause joy to well up in our hearts and spill out into worship. So would you continue to lead your people as we continue in worship this morning? In Jesus' name, amen.